Hi, it's Stephanie from from The Lighthouse. Um, I'm just recording a little intro to this episode because we had some sound snafus in this episode, which were entirely outside of our control and we weren't aware of until after we'd recorded the episode. Um, Jimmy's done his absolute best at improving the sound quality of the recording and he's done an amazing job, but it still might be lower um, quality recording than you're used to. We apologize sincerely for this error. We This was our first recording in a new studio, so that's why there was a little bit of a problem. So please tough it out. It's still a great conversation and we're sorry again for the low quality. Um, we have sorted out the problem, so it'll sound much better going forward. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie, and I'm here today with my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Lee O'Brien. Hi, Lee. Hello, Stephanie. And we are again bringing our private conversations um, in front of the microphone. So today we we're going to talk about a novel that we've talked about many, many times before, which is Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, which is something that we've both taught, but you teach it every single year. Yes, I did. I, I used to. I've, I've taken it off gothic but I, I had it on until very very recently mm-hmm. so and I love Chandler and I read all his um, Philip Marlowe novels and a lot of his short stories and things so I you know I've had a long history of reading him mm-hmm. and we were talking about that in our last podcast about how you come back to novels and you ask all sorts of different questions and it made me think about my shifting attitude to The Big Sleep but it's always been one of my favorite novels and it's the first Philip Marlowe well there's lots of him in short stories but it's I think I'm right in saying it's yes, the first, first Philip Marlowe Marlowe full-length novel mm-hmm. 1939 so why have you got shifting um, attitudes to him I think well it, it's <laughs> it all started when I read Chandler's The Art of Murder mm-hmm. and so this is his so, essay it, yeah. yes his essay about detective fiction and murder and he was so extremely mean-spirited about most of the other you know tillers in the vineyard except Hammett he adore he, he he's very fair about Hammett but he doesn't like golden age English crime and he really gets stuck into people in a really nasty way and I thought right well <laughs> Um, so I uh, and then I and his his women have always bugged me a little bit. I I think he's a much better writer of men, male characters, than he is of women. Um, it's it's it. I was reading a little bit about him this morning, and and I hadn't realised this that he got quite a lot of um, criticism um, when he was alive. He he was attacked from. He, there's a funny funny quote of him saying, "When I write stories full of murder and mayhem, people criticise me." When I take out the murder and mayhem, people criticise me for not having what they were criticising me for having before. So he got he got attacked a bit, but he it I I I really love Hammett yeah. of the two of them because they're two really super important American writers. They they basically invented you know got um detective the hard boiled detective, detective yeah. genre. I prefer the Continental Op. Who is is Hammett's main um, uh, detective figure? You know, he he he's short and he's a bit overweight and he's a very sweet man. And and I don't know, Marlowe ha- begins to have a bit of an irritation factor for me after a long while of reading him. Um, and I do sometimes think that Chandler got a bit pompous about what he was doing. Mm. We'll probably get onto this a bit later about the, just the angst about modern life that's in every word of, mm-hmm. of, of the big sleep and how 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 the character of Marlowe is used as a kind of foil to the lack of honour and, and and the lack of integrity and meaning that the Chandler's obviously seen in the modern world and you don't really get a lot of that. <sighs> That, that that really serious stuff in Hammett, although Hammett's very good on the violence of early American um, democracy, I guess you'd call it, in the, in the, in the very early 20, 20th century. So he does have a kind of a social critique to him. But sometimes I think Chandler's a little bit heavy-handed. But I, my feelings about it are still complex, because I still think he's one of the best writers. And I do love the wit. Mm. I love that deprecating wit that that Marlowe has. So, yes, it's sort of I'm not quite the worshipper I once was, but I still think he's an amazing writer. What about you? 
Well, I, I love the atmospherics of Chandler. I, I agree. I think he's an amazing writer. Every time I read him, I'm struck by just how good he is. Yeah. But for me, it's not really like the plots are a mess. You know, like really, they're just, I, I I cannot tell you how many times I've read The Big Sleep. I still don't think I'd be able to adequately explain what happens in that novel. In fact, I still don't think I know what happens in that novel. And like there's one murder that is entirely unsolved. And there's this great story about like when the um, movie was being made, the screenwriter, um, who I think might have even been William Faulkner. Um, yes, he, yeah. did, he did work in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. I think that he, it was him that rang up Raymond Chandler and said, who killed the, the guy in the car, yeah. the, the butler in the car, I think it was, mm-hmm. and and Chandler, who I think was drunk at the time, um, said, I don't know, I'll read it and get back to you. <laughs> um, and then he called him back and said, I have no idea. It's no, it's not actually solved. So the murders, the plot, yeah. complete mess. But for me, I read Chandler because yeah. the prose is so sparkling yeah. Um, yeah. and just the atmospherics. I just, like, whenever I read Chandler, I really feel like I need to be in like a speakeasy with a gin and you know <laughs> um, yeah it's just like that that noir hard-boiled yeah. kind of atmospherics yeah. it's so good at conveying that sense of yeah. of that world and you know like yeah. you're in that world when you when you read him and yeah. sentence by sentence it's they're brilliant. wonderful but yeah. the story's just are messy. It's funny, you know, but I only realised the messiness of them though when I came to teach it. I I I when I was reading him for pleasure, I just tended to go with the mm. plots because there, there there's there's two main plots in the big sleep. Because, yeah. Because um Philip Marlowe was supposed to be investigating the blackmail case against Carmen and, and you're trying to figure out and that's complicated in, in itself but then you get that sudden crossover or it comes right at the beginning with General Sternwood who mentions Rusty Reagan and once he mentions him Philip Marlowe gets obsessed by him he will never admit that he is mm. but I always but he is, yeah. he is yeah. and I always thought it's like the two the two sort of phantom sons the, mm. the sibling rivalry of, of General Sternwood because it's quite clear Marlowe doesn't like a lot of people but he likes the old man when he meets him God knows why because he's a pretty awful kind of character but, but isn't that scene brilliantly done when he goes to see oh, him and they're in the um the in, greenhouse in the greenhouse, and it's so hot and the orchids that's right and the it's orchids stunning. and there's this kind of like quasi-sexual kind of vibe yes, of the orchids and then yes. it's so hot and they're pouring with sweat, sweat. Yes. yeah and, and and so that so the two plots start and when I, when i was just reading him because i i loved it i I just tended to go along with it. I didn't notice the, the, the loose ends that weren't tied up. And I I think because the power of the characterization mm. is just so overwhelming. I mean, mm. You can pick about certain characters. I, I, can, I can get annoyed about the women and everything, but I still think they're vivid and amazing characters. Yeah. And he does very little um, work to make them so vivid. Mm. Yeah, it, It's it, very quickly and tidily done. You can see why Hollywood loved Oh, yeah. love the big sleep in particular um the it, it's very cinematic but of course he's writing when cinema is 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 the most powerful pop culture manifestation and as you say Faulkner was um was a screenwriter too they both hated it I hated doing it I know another thing I read this morning um I forget what movie it, oh yes it's it's strangers on a train oh yes um Chandler was Scriptwriter on that for Hitchcock. Oh, really? No, I didn't know that. I either. think if, if Wikipedia can be trusted, yeah, he was, and they fought like like Kilkenny cats. Um, Hitchcock and Chandler didn't get on. I and, can imagine um, that. <laughs> Two and, powerful male egos. Hitchcock heard Chandler refer to him as that fat bastard. Oh, <laughs> dearie me. And, Hitchcock got furious and tore his script up, and so there's all this going on in the background. But it it is very cinematic, and the whole figure of the gangster, mm. which um, Chandler does, the Canino character, I just think is brilliant. The, the the savagery of the man, he's he's just like he reminds me of the pit bull in um, No Country for Old Man. He's a killing machine. Mm. And he and and he likes killing, and he's a nasty, nasty man. And that whole 
Jimmy Cagney gangster. Yeah, ethos. I was about to say Jimmy Cagney. It's, yeah, it's everywhere because yeah. there was such one. Well, Bogart was one, but but Jimmy Cagney, George Raft, all these amazing actors just brought these these this gangster, this prohibition stuff to life, and you can see that the Big Sleep is is sort of talking back to the cinematic villainy and the cinematic yeah. detective. But and of course, the the cinema's feeding off that as well. Yeah, I actually think it's impossible to talk about The Big Sleep without thinking about cinema because to me it is that kind of film noir. Yes. It, it is film noir in a novel. Yes. Um, yes. And it's so obviously cinematic. It's so obviously thinking about like the gangster figure. Um, you can imagine, I mean, obviously we have the film The Big Sleep, which is a wonderful film. With, Amazing with, film. That with was Bogart. my first introduction to the story. Yeah, I think I saw the film Brilliant first too, film. actually. Yeah. Um, People must watch it. It's, all, yeah. it's an old black and white movie. You, but it's so you great. Not lived <laughs> that and the Maltese Falcon, I yes. think. The, the, and Bogart is, is Sam Spade. Spade. And he's, yeah. I don't think he's right for either character. People say he's the perfect Marlowe. I don't think he is. He's too old. Yeah, he is too old. <laughs> and he's not big enough. Marlowe's quite a big man. Yeah. But and he's a young man in the vigor and prime of his life, which Bogart, of course, wasn't. wasn't yeah. yeah, but anyway, that aside, yeah, it's uh, so. What we were saying, yes, it's um, the 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 yeah. intersection between that yes, and cinema, and yeah. I mean, like, it's just it is obviously about kind of the way that cinema has constructed that kind of vision of of Los Angeles, yes. and that vision of of crime and the the modern city is a kind of den of iniquity i suppose yeah. and that the movie picks up on this brilliantly where everything is really hot and that kind of humidity feeds into like the stir craziness of the kind of atmosphere it does and you and you you, you mentioned the word crime it it's interesting that chandler with the marlow novels and, and hollywood with the gangster movies what they are doing is sort of tracking and imagining the centrality of crime mm. to, to american culture mm. And, I, and, that, and that's fascinating. And that gets back to that kind of vision that you get in The Big Sleep in particular, because The Big Sleep means death. Yeah. So so we've got that sort of coded, that, that, that seriousness coded. Well, it means in, like, in, I mean, the uh, title is essentially death. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, lest it, you know, hide and, its light under a bushel. And, yeah. and you realise, too, at the end, that Rusty Reagan, who becomes a really lovely character you send. I feel the way Marlowe feels. Marlowe wanted to know him, mm. and and I think it's amazing that that Chandler does this with a character that that he, he, he you know when you get to the end. Another spoiler. Sorry. Spoiler he, alert! But yeah, it's been out since nineteen thirty nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's dead from <laughs> yeah, from, from day one. From, from day one, and when Marlowe turns up to the Sternwood Mansion. And he can see the oil rigs. I love that. He can see the oil rigs, which is the source of their money. It's new money. It's new wealth. It's oil. And he comes, after he's spoken to the general, he comes out to the steps and he's wiping the sweat off him, as mm. you're saying, all the heat. And he's looking down and he looks down over the oil rigs and he's actually looking at where Rusty Reagan's body mm. is. And I thought, yeah, that there's that, that really, it, it, he's a, it, it's a, it's like a shadow narrative in the nor- in the story that Marlowe becomes obsessed with Rusty Reagan, mm. and it's a story that he's not supposed to be. He in- keeps denying into. it, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah, that's he's right. Saying I'm not looking for him, but, but he is. Everything he's doing is trying to find him. And you, as a reader, are joining to that too. Like yeah. the the blackmail storyline is. Yes. By no means as interesting as as the Rusty Reagan story. No, and this this comes to my beef with Chandler because I think that part of the story is so interesting because even with an absent male character, Chandler makes him so vivid. He's the Irish. I love the Irishness of him, and he's um, he's a bootlegger. He, uh, uh, but he's he's a as Canino is the psychopathic nasty crook. Rusty Reagan's just sort of, he's crooked because the world is crooked and he's sort of gone along with it, but he's Mm. basically an honourable man. I think Chandler can create these wonderfully flawed male characters, but when he comes to creating flawed female characters, which the two Sternwood sisters are, there's a... There's a nastiness about the way he sees them, mm. a, a, a kind of belittling of them. He doesn't ever let them be as complex as he just routinely allows even minor 
male characters to be. That's that's a lot. That that's where I get a bit annoyed with him. Although I think Silverwig is a lovely character. Yes. Um, yes. The the gangster. What, what's his name? Eddie Moran. Is it Moran? I forget yeah, what his name Moran. is. Yeah. But um, it is quite misogynist. It, mm. it, it, it is. I I and especially the Carmen character because I, yeah. I what's he doing with that? Is is, is she having my reading of it is that she's having epileptic fits. That's my reading of it as well. And so she's, and because she's gone off the rails, because her father is actually a bad father, he, he's an old man to have such young children. And he's sort of not involved. He, he yeah. just lets them go to hell in a handbasket. Mm. And so her, my understanding is that her epilepsy is, is aggravated by the drugs she's taking. And it gets her into a kind of a psychotic state, but that's—I mean—that's not her fault. Yeah. she's she's not a monster. She's somebody who's ill. And, she's a victim. And, yeah, yeah, and and there's, and he just the way he describes her and the she has this funny shaped thumb and the, and the little teeth like like a like a little monster's teeth, and he doesn't he doesn't do that. To the men characters, and she's so they're such almost like a visceral kind of disgust I in her so. that uh, so. in his reaction to her. Mm. I mean, he's sort mm. of beguiled by Vivian, mm. but mm. he's mm. there's such a like a kind of real disgust yeah. in Carmen, yeah. and the things about Carmen that are actually beyond her control. Yeah, that it's just it's quite uncomfortable. It, it's, it's just it's very unsettling. Isn't yeah, it? it's just such a it's a man describing a woman in ways that really, yeah. like the kind of ways that men describe women that really upset me where there's this focus on their, you know, personal appearance, yeah. their yeah. their yeah. supposed mm. lasciviousness, you know, it's just mm. And the more they're desired tiring. by the male person who's watching them and, and describing them and narrating them as Marlowe is, the more they're desired, the more... The contempt seeps in yeah. to them. It's 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 a it's a nasty thing, and and I, I get a lot. I get different reactions to Vivian, in yes. in in tutorials because I, I actually think she comes close to being, an interesting character, although she's so, caught and so victimized by all the mess she's in, mm. and it's not until you get right to the end of the novel that you realize. She's just been so desperately trying to protect her sister yeah. and her father for some god unknown reason why she just didn't let that silly old Yeah. Man just let him go. Yeah, yeah. Well, for heaven's sake. But you realise and she's she's been so at odds with Marlowe because Marlowe is the closer he gets to the truth, the more he threatens her mm. sister whom she loves and mm. cares about. And it's a shame that he can't quite bring her off as the quite noble in in many ways character she is yeah i think you're right there is a, a kind of any any kind of secondary male character even tertiary male character is treated with such kind of um even when they're monstrous they're treated with such sort of sensitivity but with yeah. He can't do it with, yeah. the, with the female characters. One I really noticed the the, the, the the little guy who's following him because yes. he's got information about where um, Eddie Mars's girlfriend is, is being hidden away for reasons I can't quite remember <laughs> now why she's... Oh, God, I can... The, the, hidden, his plot goes away. out of my head the second I finish reading it. But yeah. he's such a lovely man. He, he's sweet and he's this... He's this do you remember the yeah. character? I can't yeah. think of his name. He's quite desperate. And and he's trying to give Marlo the information, but Canino is on his trail, mm. and Canino murders him. He, mm. he and Marlo is overhears the murder. He doesn't know mm. what he's hearing until he gets in, and, and Canino has forced the man to to take poison, mm. and it's a vicious murder. And he's such a sweet man, and Marlo's so cut up by it. But he's just this little odd guy who's 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 trying to make a living, a bit of a grifter, yeah. and, and there's nothing you know good about him. But he's a nice man, and, and but just at that level, at that yeah, micro level, that's exactly what I mean. Like even like he's treated with such kind of dignity, which fair enough. But yeah. he doesn't 
do that with the women. I don't think he does. And he's been criticized. He was cri- he's been obviously criticized for his portrayal of women. He's criticized for his portrayal of gay characters. Now I'm I'm not sure in the Big Sleep whether I I, I don't know how I feel about that because I think the Carol Lundgren character mm. Geiger's lover, the young male lover. I think he's a really interesting character. Yeah, I think he is too. And I, I mean, in some ways, the way he's represented kind of buys into stereotypes about yes. about gay people, well, very much so. Well, it, well, partly it does, but I, I don't know just that the way he's described as looking and acting because he's quite strong. And I love, I can't even, am I allowed to say the word when he says. Marlowe's interrogating him yeah. and his only answer to him is go fuck yourself yeah. and he says it over and over again and I think at last somebody who actually talks back yeah, <laughs> he doesn't exactly. have the wit but Marlowe but at last somebody just oh go fuck yourself I know well, and you <laughs> think like it. that would actually be probably closer to how well, most gangsters would respond would actually be yeah. but I, but there's I, a strength in that, isn't there? I think that so, and and the way he he lays Geiger's body out, yeah, because he's found Geiger shot, and and he won't allow that. He won't allow that desecration of the body. So he takes him into the bed, and he and he yeah, lays, he, he treats him with respect. He treats him with respect and with love, I would say. Yeah, but Marlowe is, I find it quite confusing because Marlowe is sort of disgusted by him on the basis nothing more than the fact that he's gay mm. and so is the detective um, who doesn't there's some one line where he says he, he avoids touching him or when he's arresting him and I think oh jeez you know this is horrible stuff but on the other hand Marlowe I think is actually represented as understanding him as well so I don't even though I'm, I'm pretty clear about Marlowe's really you know crap attitudes to women mm. I don't know that he's homophobic in in the way that the characters around him are. So yeah, that, I found that interesting. There is there's a bit of homoeroticism going on there too. Yeah, is there that is. just me? No, I don't. I think uh, I I read it as that yeah, as well. That but fight see, they have is you know I thinking right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree, and I think that there's more like he's reflecting the homophobia of the time yes. than actually buying into it himself. Yes, he's homophobic, but there's also a way in which he likes and responds to Carol Lundgren, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's not... um, It's very buried in it. It's not overt at all. Yeah. And he uses that denigrate. He calls him son all the time, so he's emphasising. It's a patronising way of talking to him, a way of goading him, and, and that's hideous. But all within it, he he's actually trying to get him to cop a plea so that he doesn't mm. get the death penalty because he knows he's shot um the bro he <laughs> gets complex he oh, shoots plots, yeah. he shoots Carol Lundgren shoots Brody because he thinks Brody shot Geiger but yeah. Brody didn't, didn't shoot Geiger the yeah. chauffeur. I know, yeah. So he's, but it's first degree murder. Yeah, so he would. He would so in that beating up scene and, and that scene where he's, it's there's a lot of nastiness in it. What Marlowe was actually trying to do is persuade him to plea, take a plea or whatever they call it, and, and give the police information so he doesn't actually face the death penalty. Which, you know, given that he did commit first degree murder, that, that that's about the only mercy that the character can can mm. have. And so I thought, yes, it's it it's interesting how those two extremes, homoeroticism, if we leave homosexuality out of it, but homoeroticism and homophobia mm. uh are just intertwined both in the narration, much more overt homophobia in the narration I I think than in the actual interactions of the character. Yeah, I think that's true. And I just I think also, too, that there's a hard-boiled detective fiction because it is mostly about men relating to men. I think there is always a strain of homoeroticism in, I, in it. I'm relieved you say that. Yeah. Because I, I, I sort of I start reading and I think, what is, what, what's happening to me? I'm yeah. Like, <laughs> homoeroticism <laughs> everywhere. I'm seeing um, it everywhere. But, like, because it's, it's about relationships between men. Yes, it is. And, and like, yes. and these kind of mm. ways in which they become kind of obsessed with each other. Yes, that's it. 
That's you know, exactly they're, they're, and they are obsessed yeah, with each other, are. and it's and it's because yeah. of reasons yeah. related to crime. But yeah. it's they are they do become really entwined in yes. in thinking about each other constantly and they do. plotting <laughs> about you know where they are and following them around and and Eddie Mars those scenes and the way Eddie Mars is described yeah and and Marlowe's reaction to it because they're they're dominance games they're playing mm. that does edge into the erotic yeah that's right exactly unfortunately but it does it does yeah. And and I I just I I keep reading it and I think well there's more there's a lot going on here yeah that I don't know whether Chandler is is aware of because Chandler actually it, when he's saying how much he likes Hammett in the Art of Murder or an interview or something he says um, Hammett's um, Hammett was considered to be a bit cold-hearted about his characters. And he said, but he's the novel of, of, of his own that Hammett loved most is called The Glass Key. Mm. And um, Chandler said, and that is a story about male friendship, about male loyalty. Well, that is also one of the most homoerotic stories I have ever read. Right. And I, I cannot believe that, that Hammett was writing it without being aware that he is talking about a lot of sexual tension between these two, obviously hetero, obviously uber male character, but I'm sorry, it's just yeah. there. Yeah. And the way I think, it, it, we were talking about the way it interacts with cinema. Cinema um, Violence is eroticised all the time in yeah. cinema. And I, so therefore, when you start getting the violence between the males, I think that eroticism sort of edges into it. Mm. And I really don't know how many of them are aware <laughs> yeah. of what what does seem fairly obvious. Well, I think they have to be aware of it almost. Like, they're intelligent men. I mean, I don't know how much, like, they're men of their time, obviously, but it's, I don't know, it's just so... I think we've got to be careful because I think once you start reading about the attitudes to homosexuality, they were brutal. They were... Oh, yeah. It's bad enough now. I mean, like, there's still a lot of homophobia and sheer stupidity around now. But if you even go back to sort of the mid... 20th century there's a real there's there's the the attitudes are just terrible but on the other hand they were involved in the cinema and in the arts community they would have been a much more overt thing you know in the in the general in the real world kind of outside hollywood but it would have been you know so you're talking about the coding thing yeah but i mean like yeah and i and i mean there was plenty of of gay men in hollywood now usually it was an open seat it was an open yeah. secret known in Hollywood but not known no, no, to no, the audience. Mm. Um, mm. But, you know, look at, like, mm. Harry Grant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, he lived with his them. boyfriend, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. And it gets back to that idea that you encounter in, in the late 19th century with Oscar Wilde and Arthur Simmons and a whole lot of characters at, um, at male writing, and, and they write, for their coterie, they write for mm. the males who know about their sexuality, but they're also writing stuff for a mainstream mm. readership. And so you get things, you get this kind of doubleness, that what mm. the informed readership will see in, in the work and what, what the uninformed sort of general dopey popular will not even dream is there. So I think you've probably, I think it, it, it's a... It's a very complex situation about awareness of these kinds of things and, mm. and how that comes out in representations and attitudes. And, but I, I just can't help but, but see a lot of homoeroticism mm. and you have to link it to the misogyny, don't mm. you? Because if you're saying, well, to desire a woman is somehow to be weakened, mm. maybe to desire a man is, is, is somehow to have that... that uber masculinity maybe i don't know i yeah. don't i don't know how the well there's such like stuff works yeah well there's just such contempt i think for yes, female sexuality there is, there is. and that, fear of it yeah that's right absolutely yeah. and fear of women's bodies yeah. you know it's just kind of monstrous things oh yeah before. yeah spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action yeah that like <laughs> that that sense that like women are kind of these monstrous figures that will yes. kind of consume men suck them in suck the juices yeah and then and like it's it's emasculating yes, almost exactly yeah. yes to feel desire is to be emasculated so therefore if you flip it if you're feeling desire for another male maybe you're not maybe it's safer maybe, it, maybe it's safer 
if you don't, if you never admit under torture that that's what you're feeling, because mm. then you get all that, all that layers of self-delusion. Mm. So I, I, that's one of the things that makes Chandler and to a certain extent Hammett really fascinating to me. It's, it's the mm. politics of masculinity and yeah. masculine desire. I think um, it's only in the glass key that I can see that really what is to me obvious homoeroticism because with the continental op character it's not there at all mm. um, he's and he, there's a lot of ni- much nicer women characters I think in Hammett maybe yeah. one of the reasons I, I I feel a bit more at ease with him um, but yeah but so we need to talk about Los Angeles we need yes can we go back to what we were saying uh, at the beginning of this where I was saying to you my um, my shifting attitudes to reading the big sleep. What's it saying about modernity? Because these are, I mean, it's right at the beginning of the Second World War, 1939. So we, we've had the First World War, we've had the Depression. How, how would we locate, because I think a lot of the angst that's coming out in the big sleep is angst about the modern world. Yes. So what were you, how were you, did you, what were you feeling about that? Well, it's, it's, it constructs a modern world in which crime is so ubiquitous that it's almost impossible to imagine how you could live in this world and not be involved in crime. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's so degraded. Um, it's got like this kind of superficial glamour of, you know, women's, you know, in, in beautiful clothes, smoking and yeah. in drinking and, yeah. you know, it's got this kind of, um, speakeasy kind of underground club kind of glamour yeah, yeah. but it's so degraded it's so dirty it's so um everybody has a secret agenda there is no gentility there's no civility there's no um yeah. there's there seems to be almost no kind of genuine genuineness about any of this yeah. it's it's a modern world that is that is completely fallen it's fallen it's a fallen yeah. world isn't it is, it? it's, it's a corrupt yeah. world it is a corrupt world and it's it's impossible to imagine Chandler even thinking about writing about, you know, like a happy family or a happy couple. A little house on the prairie. Yeah, like everybody in America Diana. seems to be a gangster. Like everybody That's right. in where, these books. Where are the happy? Well, and, and where are the people who aren't involved in crime? Well, exactly. Yeah. Everybody is either a detective, yeah. a gangster, yeah. a gangster's mole, yeah. or, or yeah. somehow implicated yeah. in some kind yeah. of crime. There's like no space away from crime. And when you think of that other kind of mythologizing narrative about America, yeah, America, what is it? Home of the brave, land of the free, whatever. And and then and and so we've had the kind of um, handover from from the the British Empire to the mm. we've got the American Empire in full swing. Yeah, well, this we, is just this the, is, the apex yeah, of it, or yeah, the just, beginning to be the apex. Just of about power. to save everybody. Yeah, the Second and, World War. And and so, but so it's right at the beginning. She said, so we've had the Wild West, and America sorted itself out. Then then you have all the violence and the carry on in in the nineteen twenties with prohibition and, and and all that kind of stuff. And but, but what how how is it that that sense? I like the word you use. That sense of degradation mm. is is so entrenched just in the mid twentieth century. Mm. It's as if industrial capitalism has a kind of once it arrives on the scene, um, yeah, we get it in Frankenstein. Everything, everything, it's all downhill, isn't it? I'll yeah. Well, I think it's. I, I think it is that sense of degradation is absolutely about capitalism and yeah. that kind of drive to like, this is a this is a city that is really super like superficially doing really well and it's rich and you know there's you get that sense that like yeah. things are happening you know yeah. that the city is booming. But that that is invariably tainted, and all the money is dirty, it's, it's, and it's, everything yeah. is dirty. Like the oil sumps, it's oil money, and yes. oil is a viscous kind of dirty thing. Yeah. And as you said about the the orchids in the in the in the, in the hot house at the beginning, they're, they're they're beautiful things, but they're tainted and they're dirty. Mm. And it's almost as if once you once with industrialization, you sort of get the degradation and the just the, the soiling of nature, the natural world itself. But the 
the modern city like Los Angeles, I mean, that is where industrial capitalism is leading, isn't it? The, mm. the, these huge, big cities. So to be a full, you know, human being, you know, the city is the place where where you go. And yet, in the big slate, it, it's 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 death. It's it's they're, they're places of death. Yeah, and I mean, Los Angeles, because of that association with Hollywood, and because it's you know one of these big modern cities, huge modern cities, has like this again has this glamour attached to it. Mm. But like whenever I read Chandler, I'm really conscious of like the dirtiness of the city, yeah. and like even on a like you know microscopic kind of scale, like yeah. I feel like yeah. you need a wash after it because it's so it's. <laughs> You know, it's so kind of like yeah. you feel like you go outside yeah. and you get all yeah. this kind of um, yeah. dirt from the streets yeah. and this kind of degradation that kind of yeah. clings to you. And he keep, it's interesting, isn't it? He keeps coming back to his little office. Yes. It, and it's a very lonely space mm. for him. He comes back because his, his heart you know, doesn't have any... He's a, he's a lone wolf. He's a classic lone wolf detective. Mm. And he comes back, and there's lots and lots of descriptions when he sits down at the desk. He's, he watches the dust drift across. He opens a window, and he can smell the cooking from downstairs, and the smell of the city comes in, and the wind sort of blows the dust across his desk. And mm. you can see that this little inner sanctum that he has is still threatened from, from mm. the outside. And he, you're often seeing him, he tidies up a little bit, and then he sits down to play chess with himself, which I think is... What, or does he do that at home? Yeah, he does that at, I think I think he does that at home. Yeah, but he's very. I, I, lots of critics have mentioned this about um, Marlowe that he's actually quite domesticated. He domestic homo domesticus. He comes back to his office and he comes back to his home, and they are they're, they're domestic spaces. They're, and he wants to keep them like yes. He he's always sort of fussing about like keeping that kind of world out of his domestic space. Yes. You and see, he can't do it. And that that's why he gets so angry with Carmen. Yes, she comes she has... and she gets into his bed and, yeah. and there's that awful thing where he where he after he throws her out he pulls all the sheets off the bed and, and yeah. washes they like she's like she's she stinks or something, you know, her sexuality. It's it's a really you know, it sort of sets you back a bit when you read that sheer sense of disgust. But yeah. it's partly that she has invaded a space that he will not. Women are supposed to be the domestic ones, but but then they're not in Chandler. They're no, ones they're not roaming around in all sorts of trouble. Yeah, they're the vulnerable ones, but they're not domesticated in the no. least. No, no, no. They're, these are not housewives. No, no, they're not. <laughs> no. Yeah, but in a funny kind of way, Marlowe is a bit of a housewife. Isn't yeah, he? I wanted to talk about Marlowe and have what you <laughs> make of Marlowe because he's got this like conception of himself as like this. You know, he sees that that. Um, the stained glass of the of the knight, and you know he's yeah. the knight bringing yeah. kind of yeah. you know chivalry back to a fallen mm. world. Mm. Um, do you like my work? I do. I must admit, mm. I do. Um, I even with all the the, the, the strange kind of attitude, it, it's the it's the it's the humour that I love, yeah, and that self deprecating humour of him, and I love the way. Did you notice that that he uses his wit as a weapon? He's a, and and he's at his funniest and most biting with people he really loathes. Yes, with women. Women, yeah. <laughs> and and all the crooks that he because he uses it. He, you sometimes you you're reading the scene, you think, oh, Christ, shut up! You know, you're yeah, gonna, yeah, you're gonna. gonna this is not you know. In a minute. Yeah, you've got to go with the but gun. He, you, yes, yeah, he yeah. uses that. He uses a verbal violence instead of although he does get caught up with violence. But I notice with the the general. There's no laughing around. There's, there's, I don't think I'd have to go back and check. I don't think there's a single joke that he makes with General mm. Sternwood. Yeah, that's a good beginning. That's a good observation. I hadn't noticed. And that. he yeah. does. So he he uses. I, so I love that. And just you know, I don't just love. I always read this in the lecture. That opening description of him. It was about eleven o'clock in the morning, mid-October, with the sun not shining, a look of hard, wet rain in the clear clearness of the foothills. I was wearing my powder blue suit, a dark blue shirt, tie, and display handkerchief, black brogues, black wool socks with dark blue clocks on them. I was neat, clean, shaved, and shaved and sober, and I didn't care who knew it. <laughs> I was everything the well-dressed private detective ought to be. I was calling on four million dollars. <laughs> And it's I love it's the powder blue suit. That's just great. What does he look like? Yeah, I know. Imagine this guy. Fashion, fashions have changed. Fashions but, have changed. But I, I just, think powder blue suit just, conveys strength in you. I love the voice. 
and and you picked up the stained glass window where he's looking at the night who just who who's frozen forever in the stained glass glass panels he can't save the maiden yeah is it, 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 it he's not he's not called the shop soiled galahad in this story i think that's in one of the later ones uh, might be in little sister anyway it's in one of the mm. other Marlowe stories he's called the shop soiled Gal- galahad so there's that aspect See, this is what I like about Marlowe, and this is why I get a bit annoyed about Marlowe. It gets a bit angst-ridden uh, sometimes, but he he is the lone, honourable man. Mm. And he has a very well-developed sense of that, doesn't he? He does, yeah. and that's where it's sort of just, you know, and you think, oh, geez, you know, give it a rest. Yeah, and like you're implicated in this world. Yeah. You know, you don't sit above it. That's right. You know, That's you are right. you are yeah. in amongst the... the yeah. um, well, I'm going to ask you the question. Do you like Marlowe? I like Marlowe. Yeah. I mean, he does annoy me in the same way as he annoys you. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, again, it's the wit. It's just the... Mm. He's got away with words. And it's it, Chandler is so good. Mm. Although hard to read, I actually find, sometimes, yeah. because yeah. there's so much jargon and kind of like yeah. that... Yeah. Um, that kind of way of the 30s gangster talk. It's, it actually is hard, I think, at first, but you get used to it mm. quickly. But um, Chandler is so good, you can't help but be drawn in. Even though you you see his reaction to Carmen, especially in that scene where she does turn up mm. naked in his bed, mm. and um, he's just so awful and revolted by her body that you think, yeah. you know. What, 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 what do we you do? You know, what do we, Marlo, come on. <laughs> but then he is so funny, and then he is genuinely trying yeah. to do his best. But yeah. he, he And he yeah. is, I don't know, I can always see both sides of the Marlo equation yeah. because he do, he is, you know, a part of this criminal underworld. Yes, he's trying to police it in his own way, but he is still part of it. Um, but, and I kind of roll my eyes at his kind of self-presentation of himself as like this chivalrous knight mm. going, you know, he's going to come and clean everything up. But he's so... Yeah, it is, <laughs> and he's it is. and he it's and he has his kind stuff. of like yeah. he has good intentions, yeah. And yeah. you know, Chandler's just so good. I I almost sometimes with Chandler, I kind of don't want to react as positively as I do, because I think these are all the kind of things that annoy me in other people. Like bad <laughs> plotting really irritates me. Like I'm some I, I like well drawn characters. I like all of that sort of stuff. Beautiful writing. You've but, been reading too much nineteenth century and eighteenth century. I know. <laughs> I like a plot, and <laughs> I do. I do love a good plot, and I do really respect people who are very good at plots. And Chandler's are not good at plots, as we said. And he's and he's got really problematic attitudes towards women, and that usually means that I can't engage. But yet, I do. Yeah, I do too. It's a problem, isn't it? it yeah, I, it's like he's got all the things that should turn me off, mm, and yet whenever and I read Chandler, I'm going to have a good time. You, you love it, yeah. Yeah, it, it it it's amazing stuff. It draw it does it just draws you into the world. And, it's so good at giving you that sense. It's yeah. like you're living inside a film noir, really. That's the the, the sense that I get when I'm reading it, and I can yeah. smell it, and I yeah. can see it. Yeah. And he's so good at like I think he's really good at the sensory stuff because I can just yeah. feel and see the way that rooms look yes. and smell. You can, can't you? Yeah, That's true. Have we got time to yeah, talk sure. just very briefly? Because there's a there's quite a few journal articles and books written about that actually the process of detection. Yes. And I, I meant to I, I, I meant to try I've got this all these references in my lecture and I and I forgot to get it. But there's one writer who who talks about Marlowe um oh he called it he talks about semiotics and, and, mm-hmm. and the semiotics of crime and the city with Marlowe. And he brings. I was just wondering if you and I are such readers, and we read about readers reading, and, and we this is our world. And I wonder if part of the reason we like Marlowe is that he reads his world constantly. Mm. Marlowe is actually a reader because mm. he gets to the. He's presented with a, a problem. He gets to the scene of the crime. Just, a, I mean, people have said this about detectives in general that they 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 must. In a sense, the scene of the crime is turned into text, mm. and and the detective must read the text. And it's interesting with the Sherlock Holmes stories, for example, Watson reads Holmes reading, reading. the scene yeah. of the crime, so you get that kind of double whammy of that. And so, but this is just the first person narration, so you never get outside Marlowe's head. And outside that man, who for all his flaws is trying to make sense of something, mm. 
and doing it in the interests of truth. Yeah, and I think that's, again, hinted at or pointed to by that knight imagery. Like, he has a um, a kind of literary sense of himself as, as a reader or as somebody who is approaching the world as a narrative that he has to make sense of. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I think that's a really interesting reading of, of the novel because he doesn't, he's not a god detective. He's not the, you know, a Sherlock Holmes detective at all. No, he has to, like that, no, it's no. not like he has, you know, he can just like look at a room and say, well, I know that somebody, you know, with a, you know, stump did <laughs> this, did you it. know, or the snake did it or something, um, or the dog did it. Um, but like he, he goes and pieces together the evidence mm. in a way that is like piecing together a story, yeah. like finding the bits of the story. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I agree. And he is, I, I do think he has a sense of himself as, as a kind of um, storyteller or story kind of, um, I don't know, story massager, I suppose, <laughs> um, in that he has to kind of bring together the story and make it make sense. And I think that's yeah. why he's so obsessed with Rusty Reagan. I mean, he is he is in a sort of kind of sibling, like competing for the affection of the father kind of thing. But, like, he needs to know how that he story wants went. He to know. Yeah. Yes, he wants to know about it. And he's a very reverse. I mean, I said earlier that he uses language as a form of violence, but it's a soft. I mean, it's not. It's not violent violence, is it? I mean, he's he's not. He's there's there's a lot of sort of hard nosed detectives. I think you get it with is it Ricky Spillane, and there's a yeah. there's a there's another um, whole raft of of really violent mm. detectives coming a little I think a little bit later than Chandler and but Hannah. certainly looking back at Chandler yes yeah. and and they they are they, they're thuggish because yes. Marlowe is he's not thuggish, a thug is no. He? no and I think he would much prefer to use just disarm people through language and yes. kind of confuse them and then yes. you know he doesn't need yes. to he only yes. uses violence when he absolutely when he, has to and when he has been attacked Yes, he, he does, never initiates violence. No, although he does hit, he hits some um, Brody's girlfriend. Um, oh, that's right. I hate that. I hate that scene. Another scene then. He does hit her. Yeah. So he does. So so. Yeah. See, it, there are bad things. Yeah, but he's he's look. He's a very attractive character. Oh, he is. He, you can't. He's you can't dark deny. And handsome yeah. Yes. No, no. I didn't even mean it in that sense. I didn't mean physically attractive. I mean like attractive to readers. Yeah. Yes, and he is, is also yeah. physically attractive, yeah, but he's he he's just. Yeah. I don't know. He's engaging, and he's yeah. he draws you in, and because yeah. you're in, you know, we yeah. have first person narration throughout yeah. the whole thing. Yes, you, you you're in his head, and you go along with mm. him, and you just can't that, that, not. That's in, yeah, and that reminds me of another character that people talk a lot about, whether they like or hate, and that's Pip. In this is a strange um, comparison, Pip in Great Expectations. Oh yeah, and a lot of people can't stand Pip. Because of he, he's just he, he's terminally you know confused about mm. Estella and and everything he does and he he he, he stuffs up everything yeah, he yeah. stuffs up everything he touches <laughs> basically and yet I think he's I I just adore the character yeah I, I do think too. he's one yeah. of the great voices one of the great characters in all of fiction I find him extremely compelling yeah and but he's still he's still flawed. Mm. And yet you get um, when Trab's boy is making fun of him in the street and you get that sort of despair. He knows he's being made a fool of, but there's nothing he can do about it. And there's this kind of rather sweet understanding of his own limitations. And, mm. and I think it's, a, it, it's, it's interesting. I think is it that first-person narration allows that kind of identification? Yeah, I think it does because you... I think if he had a, a third person look at what he's doing, then That's it'd be true. It would be very hard to kind of yes engage with him. It may not seem quite so. Yeah, no. like if you just like yeah. had a bird's eye view of him, yeah. you know, going about what he's doing, you would mm. think that he was. I think rather strange. Yes, that's that's a very good point. But because yeah. you're in his head and you can sort of see that he has got this kind of like good intentions underneath. Yeah. Even if he, you know, is yeah. occasionally violent and if he's yeah. occasionally, you know, he's problematic in all these sorts of ways. Yeah, I think it's one of those cases where first person narration is a really key kind of choice. If, if writers can 
do it. It must be so hard. Can you imagine the problems plotting when when you yeah. can only show what one person sees and, and yeah. understands? And it 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 just I, it's it's a dazzling technical accomplishment. I can't yeah. imagine how people do it. <laughs> and and Chandler is so good at it. Mm. Um, and so mm. he embodies his voice so beautifully. I think. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when he's coming out of because um, Sherlock Holmes is so um, overwhelming still when Chandler is beginning to write detective fiction and Chandler's very rude about Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I don't think he liked British people much. Oh, yeah. He, he was educated. Anyway, never mind. Um, and, and he, it, it, but of course we, we their first person narration in, in the Sherlock Holmes story, but it's, it's Watson. Yeah. You couldn't do it in Sherlock's head. No, you can't. You couldn't. No, the plots are impossible because Mr. And I know everything and just turn up and say, all oh, right, you know. Well, yeah, it's solved now. Let's go home. Yeah. Let's go home and have a cup of tea. But it's interesting that Chandler chooses to write against that. He, he, you don't yeah. see his detective from the outside. You, you, you see him from the inside. And that works because he's not the god detective. Yeah. He's just a, you know, yeah. a guy who is yeah. scrapping around. Yeah. Information. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And he's vulnerable. Is it that he's always vulnerable? Possibly. Yes. I think so. Mm, and know. he and he does have to work for it. It's not nothing like no. lands on his lap. No. No, it doesn't. And he's also something we haven't touched on. He has a very problematic relationship with the police. Yes. Who most of whom are really frighteningly corrupt. It's oh, even yeah. worse in Hammett. Yeah. Um. The, the corruption in police are just. You know, and I mean, in Sherlock Holmes, the police crazy. are just stupid. Yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're, they're just, just kind of yeah, out of their depth. They're well meaning. They're but, well meaning, but they just have but no clue. There's no police corruption in Sherlock. I mean, no, no, no. The thought. No. What's <laughs> Scotland Yard? They would never do such a thing. Um. But like here, we have like the 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 mechanisms of the state are like and completely corrupt. Take him down to the. They have all kinds of jokes. Take him down and beat the truth out of him, and and, and they are talking. They're talking about real. Violent. Yeah, and that's why you need somebody like yeah. Marlowe because yeah. the police aren't going to sort this stuff no. out. No, and he's often on the receiving end of it. Um, the Nero Wolf um, novel crime novels pick that up too because Archie um, in those novels is often on the wrong side of the police. Yeah, and they beat the living daylights out of him on a yeah. regular basis. Yeah, so you know, how do up. you find justice yeah. in this world if oh, you can't rely yeah. on the police? You can't there's, rely on the police. They're in the pocket because they're in the pockets of the big of the money. Big, yeah, that's right. It's the big pay money. off the gangsters, yeah. pay them off. The big sleep yeah. and the big money. I think that is a beautiful place to finish, yeah. Lee. Yeah. Um, once again, thank you so much for coming in. Well, I just love you. having these chats with you. Yes, I I, I, found, I find myself selecting books to read based on, I think, like, oh, oh me and Lee could have a really nice oh, chat about keep, this. Keep it up. Keep I will. I'll yeah. keep it up. We have lots more crime to yeah, come. Yeah, we do. Don't oh, we? we do. So we're, much we're, crime we're, to come. We're wallowing in it. We're yeah. wallowing in crime. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you once again, Lee. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Um, this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. If you could please uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, then we would appreciate that if you'd like send us any feedback or suggestions for future episodes and you can contact us at fromthelighthouse.org. We'll see you again in two weeks or so. Bye. Bye.